I guess jump right into this uh, the second part here to seduction let's see if we can get through it all today but maybe maybe not looking at what we have so I left off the last time talking about um, the story at Samarkand and that leads into uh, what would be around the halfway point of the book and the subsequent chapter titled the secret and the challenge so these are two terms that are pretty important in uh, Baudrillard's work, although at no point does he really uh, allocate them a certain definition, rather he they're just things that float around throughout his work, especially the stuff that follows this. You know, there is a little bit of a a brief move away from that with simulacra and simulation, and um, yeah, in the shadow of the silent majorities, but it picks back up again a lot, in, especially in Fable Strategies and, and uh, going on from there. So the secret for him uh, is, well, he begins the chapter with just the sentence, the secret, whatever that means. But he goes on to say that the seductive, initiatory quality of that which cannot be said because it makes no sense, and of that which is not said even though it gets around, Thus I know another secret, but do not reveal it, and he knows what I know, but does not acknowledge it. The intensity between us is simply this secret about the secret. So one of the elements about the secret that Baudrillard finds so interesting is that it maintains something of a mystery. So this is really an important quality. So what we've been seeing so far in Baudrillard's work is, is his... Um, identification of these oppressive models of understanding, right? So in what way does, for instance, looking back to symbolic exchange and death, does Freud give us a narrative about something that should really be left hidden? And what is that noise? Oh, go away. Uh, something that should really be left hidden. So the secret for Baudrillard is really something to celebrate, in a sense. But at the same time, and I guess this would, this would be a reason why he doesn't really explore it in detail or give it that kind of face, is that that would destabilize its very um, potential at being something, uh, occupying that sort of enigmatic space, or that sort of enigmatic um, positionality. And then the challenge... Sorry. And then the challenge is, uh, serves something of another purpose, but they are intertwined in some way. So, in the original French, there are times when challenge is translated from défier. So, a direct translation could be to defy, to, um, I guess, simply to challenge. But with uh, to defy, there is the implication that there was some success in the act of challenging. Whereas to just challenge something does not imply there having been... Um, been the consequence necessary or, or a certain consequence that, that was sought after or there having been any consequence at all. And to challenge in Baudrillard's work for the most part, uh, he uses that when speaking about, air quotes, primitive societies and the way in which they engage with something like sacrifice and how that serves as um, a way to defy or a way to challenge the gods or in the case of the Aztecs, which is an example he gives often, how 
there was a certain necessity to feed the sun. But it's not a one-way street. In fact, it operates, um, I guess, chiastically. Chiastically. I think that's right. Chiastically, there is a, obviously a giving and taking, and that's something that they recognize, where it's not as though the sun just gives without, you know, needing uh, the counter gift, a la mouse. But actually, you need to replenish the energy of the sun with blood or, or whatever, and how there is not simply in that uh, mutual understanding. So the role of the challenge is to, in a sense, push the very limits of that which whatever object we have at hand or whatever uh, source of energy or power or whatever, be it a god, the sun, god, the sun can be a god, but given any of these examples, it is not simply as though these things occur uh, happily, but that through the, through the act of challenging these persona, if I can call them that, are driven to perform in some capacity, in, in some superior capacity to that of the past, to drive them to be better than themselves. So to return to the secret once again, um, the secret is for Baudrillard what stands away from that which is repressed within the you know the lexical domain of psychoanalysis, or that which is hidden, which can ultimately be found, like the, say for instance, the purloin letter in um, Edgar Allan Poe's tale there, that Derrida uh, writes about quite quite eloquently. But in in those two instances, there is the possibility of a thing coming into fruition again, of something coming back, whereas the secret for Baudrillard is that which maintains its status only by its maintaining that element or that component of its essence. So it would be wrong to think, uh, to assume, or to attach to psychoanalysis um, a certain negative quality coming from Baudrillard's theory of seduction here. Because I, I don't think he's totally prepared to do away with that, right? And this, this is what he was talking about in Symbolic Exchange and Death very much, is that and that is that psychoanalysis, there is the potential for it to maintain the secrecy of the unconscious and to treat it as fundamentally enigmatic and fundamentally un un and understandable. I'm sure there's a better word for that, but it's, it's eluding me. And for Bojir, really all it is is trying to think of these things in terms of their impossibility as opposed to their possibility. To what extent can we maintain the secret of the unconscious? I guess I can't really say while still trying to map it, because that would be uh, kind of paradoxical. It'd be like trying to, you know, uh, to calculate an atom's, you know, velocity while figuring out its location. Like you can't, both can't occur simultaneously, which leads Baudrillard to say that the unconscious appears as our secret, our personal mystery in a confessional and transparent society. But it isn't really a secret, for it is merely psychological. So this is what a thing that we'll return to when we look at the vital illusion, but there's a moment in there when he um, brings up Heidegger, and something Heidegger says in the question concerning technology, where it appears as though Heidegger is not to totally disavow 
technology or to totally to you know just get rid of it so Baudrillard looks at that moment and he says maybe you know this new phase whatever it be fourth uh, fourth stage simulacra or fourth um, degree simulacra hyper reality what have you are just it's just a new game any of these things is just a new game with new rules with new secrets and it would be naive to suggest that these things can actually go away. So while he's not quite there yet, you know, he's still, uh, he's, he still wants to be on the side of critique. There is, that, there is this moment here, the one that I just read, where uh, the unconscious serves not the goal of the secret, or it does not come to m mimic the secret, but that it serves as a sort of cathartic release or as a compensa compensatory, compensatory um, mode of the secret in the form of this kind of submerged depth to the human psyche. So seduction is then for Baudrillard the act of turning one from one's truth. Now there's a, there's a film that, that I, I saw recently that, that captures this particularly well. Um, no film that I've seen so far in my, in my life has demonstrated Baudrillard's theory of seduction as eloquently as this film. Yet, you know, it doesn't ever claim to do that, and there's no indication that uh, the directors had any, um, have any knowledge of Baudrillard. Mostly because it's a South Korean film, um, a South Korean horror film, that's on Netflix now, it's called The Wailing, that follows um, the story of a, of a police officer in a small South Korean town, community, um, that is being kind of... Uh, I want to... I will hesitantly call them ghosts. They're, they're, they're kind of being... Um, the town is possessed by demons. But this is really showing my epistemological limitations. Uh, I don't know what would be the proper, how it would be the proper way to describe these entities in in South Korea, or at least in South Korean myth or spirituality or whatever. But there's a really fascinating moment because the one of the people that the police assume to be the culprit at the very end of the film, sorry, spoiler alert, reveals themselves to be the the culprit. Yet it is ambiguous as to whether or not they are still the culprit. So they believe wholeheartedly that this person is the devil. At the end of the film, the person transforms themselves into the devil. But the way that it's framed it shows that this, this person, I'm, I'm not gendering them because I don't want to give it too much away here, uh, that this person is joyfully doing it. That they are becoming the devil, not because that is what they are, or a demon, or whatever, but that is because what that is what is expected of them. So in that sense, they are seduced to become that devil figure, while they simultaneously seduce the, um, in this case the police, to believing, into believing that they are in fact that demon, or that devil. So this plays a very interesting um, role, especially if we think of 
seduction, or we think of how seduction can manifest itself in, you know, practical terms, or, or has implications in, in real life, well, for Baudrillard, it's everywhere, but um, how, it, how it can play out in, in certain physical ways. So this, this becomes, uh, when Baudrillard, or this fits well with when Baudrillard writes that one can seduce someone in order to, to, to seduce someone else, but also seduce someone else to please oneself. The illusion that leads from the one to the other is subtle, is to seduce or to be seduced, that is seductive. Is it to seduce or to be seduced that is seductive? So for, for Baudrillard, the answer would certainly be both, right? There is something very important about the seductive encounter that includes both parties, which is why he goes on to continue in this paragraph that there is no longer a subject nor an object. These things work both ways. There is that element of reversibility, uh, the, the chiastic uh, relationship, which is important, and this is profoundly uh, important to my reading of that, like that film there, in how there is a there is absolutely no clear divide between evil and good, right? And of course, this is rather perplexing, given you know Baudrillard's um, claim that he is very much a Manichaean, you know, that that the good versus evil type type thinking, when if we hold his theory of seduction to be wholly true, or we take it at what it presents to us, good and evil would fold into one another, making rendering each either, um, rendering either uh, faceless in a sense. They would then come to occupy the conditions or, or contain the conditions of the other in this sort of Derridian type deconstructive, you know, um, possibility which is, yeah, I don't open up that can of worms. But anyway, uh, then, he, then he takes his time. He goes from seduction or the secret into the challenge. So what he has to say about the challenge is that in that moment when someone is challenging another person, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, correspond to the logic of, you know, you know, like a sports challenge or whatever. For Baudrillard, uh, it goes as, follow, as follows. It has a dual form that wears itself out in no time at all, drawing its intensity from this ins instantaneous reversion. It too is bewitching, like a meaningless discourse to which one cannot respond for the very reason that it is absurd. Why does one respond to a challenge? The same mysterious question as, what is it that seduces? So, the challenge stands in opposition to, to let's say, provocation. Provocation, and this is, this is kind of the way that Bell Hooks frames it in one of her pieces, or one of their pieces, um, where provocation demands a certain result from the other party. Whereas the challenge for Baudrillard doesn't see cannot predict an end. There's no forecast to be had here. It is rather an opening of possibility, in a sense. Not not in the Deleuzean, Guattarian sense, but just the resting away from someone, from their being, in a sense, towards who knows what. It, there's no way to know, but it does demand a sort of change. So in this way, there is something to be said, 
or there is a distinction to be drawn between seduction and the challenge. And Baudrillard lays it out as, as follows. There is a difference. In a challenge, one draws the other into one's area of strength, which, in view of the potential for unlimited escalation, is also his or her, his or her area of strength. Whereas in a strategy of seduction, one draws the other into one's area of weakness, which is also his or her area of weakness. So this is important, and neither holds privilege over the other. In fact, we can say that both are going on in the moment, where someone challenges someone else in that very moment, that person being challenged could very well be seducing the other person to challenge them. And this is how essentially it works. But at the same time, we could frame it as follows, where that form of seduction is in itself a challenge, forcing that person to respond with a challenge, or how that initial um, action, that initial challenge is in fact, <laughs> oh my god, is an act of seduction that was intended for, by all intents and purposes by that person receiving that call for seduction or that, that play into seduction to affirm that seduction resulting in the initial seduction. My, I don't, I don't like thinking about that, that hurts me. Um, but for Baudrillard, ultimately, to seduce is to appear weak, and then to seduce is to render weak. Desire stands opposed to seduction, then. Desire implies that there is something that comes down to the individual as a sole entity that makes up their own mind, that has their own wants, and of course, this has a, a strange affinity, has a strange uh, compliance with, or is rather complicit with their libidinal drives, which are all things for that are, you know, Baudrillard is thrown out the window. Um, seduction opposes all that precisely because it demands there having there being some kind of exteriority, a kind of acting upon the body. But it can be anything really. Like you can seduce a wall. Like there is something to be said about how objects seduce in some form or other. But if we are dealing with an individual, and I'll use that term loosely. No change is possible without the exertion of some force from the outside. Even if that force is in fact not a force, but is a form of seduction that brings that person to, into something of a weakness. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a counterforce, but still elicits responses nonetheless. So what is then to be said about seduction today? So coming out of the thinking about you know, critical theory, or the Frankfurt School, or whatever, something like the masses, something like entertainment, the entertainment industry, or the culture industry, doesn't serve any sort of mystical or, or ritualistic role. Rather, they serve, you know, they're simply the opium of the people type thing, they just numb minds, all that kind of stuff. Well, Baudrillard doesn't want to dismiss anything like that. He's kind of like, Hegelian that way, I guess in a sense. Mm, let me scratch that last part. But he's <laughs> he wants to think about these things as being part and parcel of seduction, because seduction for him is immortal. Seduction lives on. Seduction cannot be totally crushed. We hope, at least. 
So, what he, what he states of this is that the ascension of the cinema idols, the masses divinities, was and remained a central story of modern times. It still counterbalances all political or social events. There is no point in dismissing it as merely the dreams of mystified masses. It is a seductive occurrence that counterbalances every productive occurrence. So productive occurrences belong, again, to that realm of, you know, the kind of productivism to be found in Marx, uh, production of libidinal energies, or rendering productive and to potentialize these, you know, sexual drives or whatever. For Baudrillard, the, you know, stars, cinema idols, these kind of ultra-real, um, you know, uh, sign figures serve uh, a ritualistic function in the seductive moment. So he states then, he goes on to continue that, to be sure, seduction in the age of the masses is no longer like that of um, les liaisons dangereuses or dangerous liaisons or diary of the seducer, for that matter, like that found in ancient mythology, which undoubtedly contained the stories of the richest in seduction. In these, so in those kind of old stories where seduction, you know, before the hyperreal or whatever, uh, seduction is hot, while that of our modern idols is cold, being at the intersection of the two cold mediums, that of the image and that of the masses. So there is something of a digression, uh, a digression, a regression, uh, in, in seduction, where, like he says, it's somewhere to be found between the image and the masses, where the image would occupy a very, very specific role in the history of seduction. You know, we think back to, um, you know, Eidolon in the Greek, or uh, the uh, icon or idol, uh, and, the Hel and how Helen of Troy occupied that role as a phantom, as a simulacrum in a sense, and what that, you know, the effects that that had in, um, the, the Battle of Troy, or, yeah. And what role that that necessarily served, the idol or the image in that moment, whereas now in the, with the masses, with, with the hyperreal, we can hardly say to be existing in the same kind of moment. But Baudrillard wants to think about it in these two different terms, so there being the hot, it's hot seduction and cold seduction, in very many ways, you know, mirroring that McLuhan type, uh, hot and cold media, which he might actually, he does bring that up somewhere, um, right, They're, uh, the great stars or seductresses never dazzle because of their talent or intelligence, but because of their absence, they are dazzling in their nullity and in their coldness, the coldness of makeup and ritual higher atticism, rituals are cool, according to McLuhan. They turn into a metaphor. They turn into a metaphor for and the word missing for the immense glacial process which has seized hold of our universe of meaning, with its flickering networks of signs and images. But at the same time, at a specific historical conjuncture that can no longer be reproduced, they transform it into an effect of seduction. So there are still these kind of uh, these elements from hot seduction. That permeate today that still that still are maintained and you know think of the interaction between a person and their television or their telephone or whatever you know if I was gonna really 
push of Baudrillardian theory uh, to its logical conclusion, I would say that our um, our obsession with, with cell phones is, in a sense, an act of seduction, where the cell phone doesn't is is overall indifferent to us. Whoever's holding the cell phone can get the same result from it. The cell phone doesn't care who the user is. Yet it seduces us, and in, and in a way we seduce it because it wouldn't exist without without us. Or there's that sort of personification of the cell phone, like I hurt my phone, or wh whatever kind of discourse you can get out of that, that makes the cell phone human, and then can be inscribed with that sort of meaning, can be brought into the seductive moment as it has existed in you know the, the past, that kind of romantic past. So of all this, Baudrillard kind of proposes an interestingly, it's kind of surprisingly pragmatic, pragmatic, uh, you know, um, way to reevaluate how we conduct our lives. So he says that suppose that all the major diacritical oppositions with which we order our world were traversed by seduction, instead of being based on contrasts and oppositions. Suppose not just that the feminine seduces the masculine, but that absence seduces presence. Cold seduces hot, the subject seduces the object, and to be sure, the reverse. For seduction supposes that minimum reversibility, which puts an end to every fixed position, and, therefore, every conventional semiology towards an inverted, in, an inverted semiology. So, again, this idea of reversibility permeates. This idea of reversibility is part and parcel with seduction. It's difficult to say if the two can be separated, but they, they are there. They are intertwined, they're intermeshed, they define each other in many ways. Baudrillard goes on to yes, conclude this book or work towards the conclusion by um, considering the distinction between rule and law. So, quite simply, rule corresponds to a game, while the law corresponds to society, to constitution, to regulation, anything like that. So then the rule, I guess in a sense, corresponds to the realm of, of signification, corresponds to the realm of seduction, to the secret, in a sense, whereas the law is that which, you know, works within political economy, the law is that, is that which, you know, is true. The law is that which is unchanging. Anything of that sort. So he's using these terms kind of loosely, metaphorically. So he states that, Ordinarily, we live within the realm of the law, even when fantasizing about its abolition. So then he goes on to clarify that it is not the absence of law, excuse me, that stands opposed to the law. Rather, it is the rule that stands opposed to the law. So Baudrillard goes on. The rule plays on an imminent sequence of arbitrary signs, while the law is based on a transcendent sequence of necessary signs. So I, I think we would do well to just think about this in pretty simple terms. Think about a board game compared to, you know, I don't know, uh, federal law or something like that. Like, a rule in a game would be that uh, you move your piece according to the number that appears on the die. Whereas, let's just take that as being one part, one possible rule, and then in the realm of law, 
you know, you can't drive your car over a certain speed limit. So in both of these instances, there are consequences, in a sense, for the, or there are certain limitations placed on the person's ability, or the ability to transgress said limits. We all speed in, in our cars. If, you know, thinking about whatever the, how fast you're supposed to go on the highway, whether it's, you know, 60, 65 miles an hour, or 100 kilometers an hour, or whatever, no one, well, few people, I say the majority of the people are above that, so are, in a sense, breaking the law. There is little consequence for that, though, until you go past a certain threshold. And then the consequences become very real, and they match something in the ideal situation, right? You know, if we if we take a minute and we kind of forget about how certain people get, pu get pulled over a lot more than others, and we just think about it as a kind of, you know, idealistic thing, then we have established not only a limit, but we have established a certain set of disciplinary sanctions that will fall upon the person that transgresses that limit. Whereas in the rule, there is no such thing. Even the breaking of a rule, the consequences that come from that are open to discussion. The consequences that come from that do not omit the person who committed said um, infraction, does not omit their voice from it. You know, I think of just breaking a rule in a board game, for instance, and let's assume that it was by accident, right? Whereas in, in the case of the law, let's say it was by accident too. You know, people, you know, you're on the highway for five or six hours, like you sometimes forget how fast you're going, you, you don't mean to, yet the, the law remains the same. Whereas in the rule, in the board game, if you disturb the rule, and it changes the course of the game in some way or other, or it has affected the course of the game, then you must discuss how you will overcome that. Does the game cease altogether? Do you accommodate said transgression of the, of the rule? Do you continue as though nothing happened? So it's that kind of malleability that interests Baudrillard, and it's in that way that he places it in opposition to the law. But Baudrillard takes this idea a little bit further, and he says that because of the absence of a sort of repression with the rule, no one disagrees, you know, ideally, on what the rules are, because you enter into that game knowing what the rules are. It's laid out for you in advance. You don't come in and then discuss what the rules will be. They are there. And they aren't really up for debate. But it is, it is in that way that it, how it in itself, kind of ironically, occupies that kind of transcendent, transcendent space that people refuse, in many cases, to transgress, to kind of subordinate, to subvert, to subvert said rule or any given rules. Because for Baudrillard, he, you know, he, he thinks that there, this is the remnant of a time long gone, you know, that really speaks to our, what I'll call reluctantly a human nature, but it is something for that reason that we really feel discomfort with upsetting, which is, you know, you easily poke holes in such an argument, like, I, 
I break rules all the time. You ever play? You ever play pool at a bar? Do you ever get the chance to throw balls in when they aren't looking? Like we all do this kind of thing. Yet again, we kind of have to take the word uh, in these kind of ideal circumstances. So it is the game. It is the rule that has some kind of an affinity with ritual, with ceremony, with sacrifice, which with all these things that have exist that that pre that existed in the past that Baudrillard is trying to in a sense locate the remnants of or the you know kind of sift through the ruins of our current post-historical uh, society so he calls on us to you know calls on us to to understand that one must rid oneself of the idea that all happiness derives from nature and all pleasure from the satisfaction of desire. On the contrary, games, the sphere of play, reveal a passion for rules, a giddiness born of rules, and a force that comes from ceremony. Jesus, that was the cat. It scared the shit out of me. Um, a giddiness born of rules, and a force that comes from ceremony and not desire. So we see here the foundations of what will be in his later work be called singularity. So the kind of perfection of any given system, but a perfection that is um, that people are happy with, in a sense, if such a thing could ever exist, where it demands almost like a pre-conscious uh, state of the human, where you don't have that ability to kind of evaluate your surroundings and say, hey, this is this doesn't seem right, or something like that. It kind of demands uh, a very a passivity, like an, a, um, a general apathy to any possibility of there being something wrong occurring. Which has some fascist implications. Uh, there's no denying that. But it, it, in some ways it does have some very, uh, I guess, kind of liberal sentiments. Thinking about how, you know, difference or whatever can in itself be, you know, a whole um, point of designation or a whole without it necessarily coming into contact with otherness. Which is interesting, because, you know, we think of the West in very many ways, you know, especially in North America, where I'm doing this from, we have a profound desire to take things from other cultures. You know, we take yoga from here, and then we take hummus from here, we take our you know, fucking quinoa from over there, and we go around and we can do that, and we can, like, a pick-and-mix toolbox, of anything we want. Nothing is off limits. Now this is what stands radically opposed to the rule or singularity for Baudrillard because it doesn't show there to be a limit. In, in the realm of the game, um, there, is, there is that element of chance that Baudrillard is not, does not really see uh, existing in terms of the, of the law. So he states that the consummate vertigo induced by a game when the throw of the dice ends up eliminating chance, ironically, when, for example, the same number appears against all odds several times in a row, a game's ultimate fantasy, the ecstasy of checking chance, when, in the grip of a challenge, the same throw is repeated, the prisoner of a recurring, the prison, uh, the prisoner of a recurring series, and as a result, the law and the chance and chance are abolished, just because they are. I guess in a sense made a mockery of themselves, which is where 
the radicality of the game as opposed to the law, or the rule opposed to the law, lies for Baudrillard. One of its constitutive components, notably chance, in the game, you know, we think of gambling, for instance, can very easily be overturned, which is, which is necessary, and it logically follows from his thesis of seduction. It would be erroneous to attach to any characteristic of, you know, a seductive enterprise uh, a sort of finality or a determinacy that doesn't allow it to change. Everything must be susceptible to that very change in a form of reversibility where chance, in a sense, becomes order. Like the example of, you know, throwing snake eyes 25 times in a row. Then, it, then it's just absurd. Like, then, then you are no longer dealing with the realm of chance, but, but fate, in a sense. Which is, you know, the, or destiny, even, even better. And how that is always lurking in the shadows for Baudrillard. How it's always prepared to come forward, make itself known, to kind of rest us, even in the seductive encounter, away from, I guess, total indeterminacy or whatever. To make us aware of how things can easily fall into place and by, by that very token or by that very logic throw us off in a sense you know order as um, as a component of disorder or as that which leads into disorder precisely because if, if we have been, become accustomed to disorder or chance but with all this talk of games um, and society, or law, and rule, Baudrillard goes so far to say that even, um, you know, as we were, as I just mentioned about the role of order in seduction, in a sense, and how order can be part of that, that encounter, uh, Baudrillard suggests that, precisely because of that, in a sense, the oppressive mechanisms have, have taken hold and founded a new model to permeate today. And for him, it takes the... Uh, form of the norm. So the norm for uh, how it goes for Baudrillard is that we we no longer excuse me we are no longer living in an era of rules and rituals. We are no longer living in an era of laws and contracts. We live today according to norms and models. So here we're we're hearing the echoes of his earlier work, you know, in the system of objects. And we do not even have a term to designate that which is replacing sociality and the social. So to jump back a little bit, for him, the rule corresponds to, as he lays out here, rituality, the law to sociality, society. The norm, however, does not correspond to anything at all. We might say, looking, at, looking ahead a little bit to the, the, um, the masses or the silent majorities, how that is part and parcel with the norm. How a certain silence, a certain closed-off-ness does play that role. Kind of Fahrenheit 451-like. So for him, we are presently living within a minimum of real sociality and a maximum of simulation. Simula simulation neutralizes the poles that organize the perspectival space of the real and the law, while draining off the energy potential that still drives the space of the law and the social.
So any of the remnants of the law or of the social, of the real, you know, we think of libidinal drives, production, anything like that, then comes to occupy a place that was once held by the ritual, where chants seep through, seduction seep through, mystery seep through, and now these things seep through. Like in the case of pornography, for instance, where people allocate time and energy to think about how pornography might serve some kind of libidinal function or some kind of like um, libidinal drive or desire. You know, certain scientific discourses that go off about these about such things, as though these as though you know these simulated uh, instances can be thought of seriously in in that capacity. Uh, and it's kind of mind you know the discourse going on around. That kind of stuff is really troubling at times, you know, either the total disavowal or slut-shaming that goes on. Like, we've really, really entered a shitty space and time. So, for him, however, he, he doesn't attach to it a certain meaning, as I just did, you know, thinking about silence, in a sense. Uh, but he does ascribe to it the, the designation of digitality which I think is fair, you know, the distinction between, you know, myself and my computer or my cell phone or whatever, um, throws a wedge in what would have been constituted a certain sociality at a certain time. You know, we can think of Hannah Arendt here, for instance, how, what comes after the social, if you will. You know, she was thinking of the social as being a contemporary or modern phenomenon, you know, what comes, you know, what comes after. Baudrillard really does fill in. There, there are some great affinities between Baudrillard and Arendt. Um, Arendt was very much a thinker, you know, uh, a modernist thinker, very much privileging uh, certain ideas of the past, you know, especially the Greeks, um, which are which are things that Baudrillard had uh, would have a little bit more trouble with. But really theorizing the effects of like technology on this thing called the human condition. Uh, these, these thinkers go really well together. There's, there's a good, uh, good essay to be written. I've already done it a few times in different ways, but uh, I'm sure someone can do it a lot better than me. So everywhere, though, we are surrounded with remnants, or perhaps compensatory uh, methods by which we can convince ourselves, or through which we can convince ourselves that we haven't lost this. We haven't lost that sociality, which was in itself already something of a, of a removal. Kind of, you know, this platonic reasoning, um, as Plato thinks about simulation in, in the Republic. We are moving in, de in degrees away from something that may have come first, perhaps. But Baudrillard states that, the, for example, the news has been invaded by this phantom content this homeopathic transplant, this waking dream of communication, a circular construction where one presents the audience with what it wants, an integrated circuit of perpetual solicitation, so that convincing oneself of there being that communication, where, and I can't remember where, and I think I may have mentioned it here on one of these episodes here already, um, what Baudrillard has to say about a television, being, television set being left on in an empty room. It really reveals how indifferent the television is to us. The television will speak to no one. It does not care. Whereas, you know, you have a book. A book is not presenting itself to anyone unless it is being read. 
whereas a television is very loud in its communication, it's compensating for something, something that I believe is, is fundamentally something that we've lost, you know, communication. Not to say it can ever be regained, I think such an idea is dangerous, um, or that it ever really existed, but the idea of it has existed, and I believe that that is enough to, you know, force us in many ways to, you know, exert such a, a great deal of effort in consolidating it once again. Same would apply, I believe, to that thing called the unconscious, or these, you know, unchanging universal sexual drives, in, in how they've, they come out in pornography, for instance. As though these things can ever be said, ever be said to have existed. In fact, our becoming aware of them existing, you know, we think of Foucault's uh, second volume to the history of sexuality, was only a condition of their being repressed, in a sense, thinking back to the Greeks. And because of that, in a sense, our kind of management of ourselves uh, turned us into subjects or individuals or whatever, con having control over ourselves, and therefore demanded first and foremost that <laughs> uh, a, a repression of that. So I believe that Baudrillard only affirms this position when he, or my, my idea here, when he says that the extreme form of this process is to be found in our contemporary mass media, where there never was an original things being conceived from the start in terms of their unlimited reproducibility. So he brings this up in conjunction with um, him thinking about cloning. Now cloning is in a sense that uh, serves a similar function, where cloning is therefore to Baudrillard, Baudrillard uh, the ultimate state of the body's simulation, where the individual reduced to an abstract genetic formula is, is destined to serial multiplication. Then he thinks about benamine in relation to that in the uh, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction and what happens to a thing's aura. You know, I think ultimately for Baudrillard, like I would think about Arendt, um, such a thing like an aura would be a little bit absurd. Uh, but mm, here we have it, nevertheless. So we are caught now in an age of obscenity. Obscenity being another key term in Baudrillard's work uh, that that he lays out more clearly in in Fatal Strategies. But the obscenity being a thing brought to its total realization. A thing made more than what it can be, in a sense, continually circumventing its own limits, transgressing them, setting new limits, really becoming a caricature of itself. Kind of the realization of the Thousand Plateaus dream. You know, the constant drive forward, right? Where every plateau is surpassed. Which, if we think of things as really being made of, a, of a assemblages, kind of in the rhizomatic sense, then in all things are in themselves a sort of singularity. And by that very token, can then be subject to that same... Uh, argument, where for Baudrillard, he doesn't want to think of seduction as being something that can be mobilized. He doesn't want to see seduction as being something that can be taken as a political tool, because for him, you know, seduction does not work in accordance with contemporary politics, precisely because it 
far precedes that, and it, it just doesn't 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 fit. No, Baudrillard, and this is it's considered a little conservative in this way, but at the same time, kind of radical. It's really confusing. Like I have a lot of trouble with it. I hope that other people will uh, tell me why I'm stupid in what I've said. But I think it's important to note that Baudrillard does not. Not he does not advocate for the kind of Deleuzian, you know, rhizomatic form of becoming. Because for him, that would feed too much into a system. That would be too. That would have too much faith in the individual's ability to navigate this system. Whereas for Baudrillard, he wants to see things change, because that is one of the properties of seduction, or having things be wrested from there place from the determinacy, but at the same time it's not something that we can ever really be aware of. It's just something that occurs, kind of like a historical movement or whatever, kind of like a little dialectical in that way. Or is it bad you? I think, you know, you don't, you don't know a, a revolution is ever happening, right? You can only look back and say, wow, look at that, uh, and then it, you, you lay out all its effects, whatever. That really, I think, captures what Baudrillard wants seduction to look like, or what he thinks it it'll, it looks like. But on that note, um, there's a lot here. Like, that, there's a lot I didn't cover, a lot of specific stuff that Baudrillard brings up about Kierkegaard, about Balp, that, you know, I really hope everyone interested in this will actually go and read it, and to really take what I say like, I've read this, I don't even know how many times I've read this, and it gets more confusing every time. And I, every, it, with every one of these kind of talks I've done, I've really questioned my knowledge of this, this subject matter, because I come with, I end up bringing more questions to the table than answers, which is probably, the, which is the real task of philosophy, so maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe I'm not off track. But anyways, for anyone who listened this far, thank you. I hope you can get something out of this, even if it's something small, but you'll never get as much out of this as you will from the book itself, so go and buy it, go and find it in the library or something. Read it and let it blow your mind or throw it at a wall. Anyways, 